family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunther, your host, looking forward to two hours of improvisational conversation, some cool jazz music, a little street philosophy, and we always leave room for surprises because they tend to find us. The law of unintended consequences. It's the law. It can work for us or against us. It's an interesting one. We'll tap into that as well as interesting article on conspiracy theories. Been around pretty much since humans have been around. Are there really any actual conspiracies? We'll dive into that. Helping us with the conversation, not one but two illustrious co-hosts. She is our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate and Saugatarian Socialite Victoria Sullivan. He... Plays great music here on the weekends at Radio Woodstock and joins us in the conversation, Ron Van Warmer. We will have jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. A dose of street philosophy from personal friend of the Big Electron, Patrick Carlin. We'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox to get some real deep harmony. And in this age of discord, Probably a, we need a good dose. So fasten your seatbelts, inject yourself with whatever gets you motivated in the morning, caffeine or otherwise, and join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Ah, thank you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Victoria. Oh, hey, Ron. (laughs) (laughs) The law of unintended consequences. has a nice ring to it. It's, in many ways, kind of a, if you will, a human algorithm, a complex algorithm that, that has a big effect on us. And... You, you know, the main reason I can remain optimistic in this increasingly more complex, accelerating, scared out of its mind world is the world the potential of the World Wide Web. The the fact that we at our fingertips can access the Library of Alexandria quiz. Oh dear, Victoria, yes. <laughs> former literary <laughs> professor. The, what is the Library of Alexandria? I don't know that much about it either, but I, it's a great, it was a reality, it's a great metaphor for what? Well, it, it burnt, and so every book in it burnt when it burnt down, and it was a repository of knowledge at the time. So I suppose it's sort of one of those amazing sort of uh, tragedies where we imagine what was in it, probably all kinds of ancient texts from Greek and 
Greece and Rome because Alexandria was right up there on the Mediterranean and was very close to those Mediterranean countries. So that was like a little area of high culture back around the year zero, (laughs) my favorite year. (laughs) Well, let's go to Wikipedia here. The Great Library of Alexandria, Egypt, one of the largest and most significant libraries of the ancient world. The library was part of a larger research institution called the Museon, which was dedicated to the muses, the nine goddesses of the arts. And we go to, we, we leap, we do a quantum leap into the 20th century from the, uh, let's see, the Library of Alexandria, what year are we talking about here? When Zero. Did, when did it burn? <laughs> no, I, I don't know the, the date for when it burned. But, you know, it's always a little before A.D. or a little after A.D. Um, I did look up Pompeii the other day, and it burnt in Shame on Wikipedia. AD. I have to go deep into it. Just to the, It's not giving us any dates. Hmm. Um, let's see. The library or private collection was accidentally burned by Julius Caesar during a okay. civil war in 48 B.C. I'm close. Zero, 48. I'm yeah. off by 48, off by 48 years. years. In it 2000, that's not how much bad. was actually destroyed <laughs> and seems to have either survived or been rebuilt shortly thereafter. Um, the library dwindled during the Roman period. So did a lot of things. Uh, due to lack of funding and support. Um, but it was, in essence... The greatest depository of knowledge. That's what it represents. Whether we could go back and check it out, we don't know. But yes, Um, that whole area is so interesting back around that time because the idea of a universal library may have been proposed. Oh, one of my favorite people from history. Remember him, Demetrius of Phalerum? Oh, yes. I don't remember Demetrius of Phalerum. <laughs> Wild at parties. Mm-hmm. Right. D, we called him. Right. <laughs> he was an exiled Athenian statesman living in Alexandria who may have established plans for the library, but the library itself was not built until the reign of his son, Ptolemy II. Well, he's well known as he's a pharaoh. Uh, the library quickly acquired papyrus scrolls which was the way knowledge was maintained on papyrus scrolls. Mm -hmm. And then famously, during the Middle Ages or Dark Ages, as they're often called, the church, not (laughs) like most political entities, uh, didn't want people being smart because they might figure out that the church was pulling the wool over their eyes. So the church banned uh, the keeping of books, uh, unless you were unless they were theirs, they had whole bunches of them you, in their monasteries. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you were in a monastery, you could access the scrolls that the church allowed. Right, and obviously, if you were a member of a royal family, you could. But one of the huge breakthroughs of the of the Renaissance, the Great Italian Renaissance, was for the first time people started collecting private libraries. It was unheard of. Even even in the great time of the ancient Greeks, the flourishing of philosophy, people didn't have private libraries. Um, most of knowledge was discussed in at the Agora, the public square. Mm-hmm. Um, so we take it for granted, you know, having a personal book collection. That's fairly I modern. I have to tell you, a lot of people don't take it for granted. I'm amazed when I walk into people's houses. And in the past, I mean, nobody buys books anymore. But 20 years ago, you'd go into a new person, you'd met house, and they had no books. Hmm. And you're kind of looking around like, well, where are the books? Where are the bookshelves? But that's very much a, a college thing, a... 
you know, people that take learning fairly seriously. There were houses for many years who only had encyclopedia collections, and that's mm. because the encyclopedia man went around and sold it to them. <laughs> or, or they'd have buy, yeah. 20 or 30 books from something that you could join a book club called something like The World's Wisdom. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, every few months they'd send you another book in the world. But a lot of people just... It just didn't make sense to them to buy the books. They didn't quite get it. Well, now, of course, everything's going digital. Right. And the Library of Alexandria is now in cyberspace (laughs) and available at our fingertips. We take that for granted. We should not. Um, So at any rate, why do we bring all this up? Um, The law of unintended consequences. Um, There's a great teaching tale which I printed out this, oh, here it is, okay. Um, it comes in different forms that to me is the greatest example of explaining the law of unintended consequences, which affects all of us. But first, I'll give you the reason this came up with me this morning. I'm reading through the New York Times, and there was an article about that, in essence, they didn't mention it, it was about the law of unintended consequences. As devastating as this virus has been, nowhere in the world has it been more devastating than New York City, Many, the greatest city in the world. It's devastating. You no longer have commuters coming in. That's put a lot of businesses out of work. Hotels are atrophying. Um, restaurant, the restaurant industry, so important to New York, is imploding. Um, The law of unintended consequences says, as horrific as that is, whether, and we're not going to get into one, whether it's a good strategy to lock down entire cities or not, because no one's listening. Everyone has their opinion. No one's going to change their opinion right now. But the the (laughs) fact of the matter is, it's been devastating culturally to New York City, the the greatest cultural city in the world. And the article is about the fact that over the summer, there was you could hear more jazz on the streets than any time in the history of the city hmm. because the law of unintended consequences. Jazz musicians, it's tough enough making a living or surviving as a jazz musician in this country, but literally, no more. There are no jazz clubs. You know, people aren't going to jazz clubs. People aren't going to concerts. Right. Um, working jazz musicians started just playing on the street. Hmm. And the article, uh, did I print it out? Uh, I think I did. Anyway, you can check it out. It's in this morning's New York Times. It's interesting about some of the, uh, they interview some of the jazz musicians. They're not happy because they're struggling, but they say at least we're getting crowds out there and people are putting money in the hat. And um, it was one of the positive unintended consequences of a city shut down. And it reminded me of a great story. And again, we're in the age of the web because think about this. Before the World Wide Web, had I gotten this idea this morning, there would be no way for me to access. Oh, what? It, uh, <laughs> I know the story. I could tell the outline of it, but I'd love to read it, someone's version of it. I would have to wait until tomorrow, go to a library and find it, hopefully. Instead, it took me eight seconds to Google it. And, he, and you may have heard the story, it's a teaching tale. And it 
<clears throat> ties into one of our favorite subjects here at the Woodstock Roundtable, which is how do we learn? And I was surprised when in, in studying this stuff and doing talks about it, the three most of we three most effective ways we learn. <laughs> I hope Ron and I remember that. Do you, do you remember them? <laughs> games is one. Games is, and it, play. Is play separate? Is that a separate no, one? No, they're not. Oh, they're, games and play is, is one of the three. You play games. Okay. But in nature, when we see you know, young lion Practice, cubs, is that one? Repetition, practice, a way of learning. Is one. And but that's the well, that's the way storytelling is. Yeah, but we missed you missed the big yeah because <laughs> there's if you always go, one I missed. If, well, if you go to our school system, if our school system was really on the ball, and you'd say, well, clearly, <clears throat> the method that we're teaching kids in grade schools, junior high, and high school are the best way to learn, we would say, oh, the most effective way to learn is memorization. It isn't. It's one way: repetition. All right. Okay, so we, Not we've, one got, of the top three. we've got playing games and we've got telling stories. What's the one I always forget? And the one that, and, and again, I would have forgotten it too. The one we forget is the most important. And the reason that right now computers are, can, can absolutely destroy the top, the best human beings in chess, Go, or uh, you know, any game that it, it, it learns. Experience? <laughs> yes, but be more specific. Doing something? Yeah, but be more specific. <laughs> and by the way, I'm, I'm not being a wise because I wouldn't. We come always up with forget this. This is terrible. Well, that's why we keep repeating it, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we do, and we keep forgetting. Yes. Trial and error. Ah. Trial and error. Yes. Okay. And the reason we forget it is because our educational system not only doesn't encourage trial and error. It discourages right, it. Right, and the whole society, because when you <clears> say <throat> that, I remember in my household, <clears throat> um, there was an expectation of competence from us for no good reason from an early <laughs> age, you know. And my parents are like big fans of competence, and I'm a fairly big fan of competence. That's one of the reasons I love Ron, because he's very competent. <laughs> you know, No, really, you're, you're very skilled at what you do. But um, so in my house, if you had a trial and then you got an error – well, you're right. Then some of us would think through, well, why did that error occur? But my parents would be so enraged that you'd made the error that they just didn't see that as a teaching method. Hmm. And they were in the mainstream because if you think about grade school, when our brains are really forming, you're not encouraged to be creative and experiment, which is the best way to learn. Trial, what is an experiment? Trial and error. Right. And... No great scientific breakthrough ever came on the first try. Um, even Einstein chasing a light beam in his imagination to discover relativity, true story, already was able to stand on the shoulders of Maxwell and Faraday, who came up with the, uh, like, almost 100 years previous, or 75 years before, 60 years before, the, the, the law of electromagnetism. Mm. The f that there's an electromagnetic field that wasn't known until the mid 19th century so that which is why there's really no such thing as individual intelligence everything is collaborative intelligence but trial and error is key and what computers can do is they can go through trial and error at such a huge speed mm. that's why the best human chess player can't compete with the best chess program although there's a little asterisk to that too and in one way they can we'll get to that but trial and error is the most effective way of learning 
You want to learn not to put your your hand on a hot stove. Do it once. <laughs> right. Well, that that's the one time learning. <clears throat> but I'm thinking of all those um, years that kids spend with athletics and coaching, and clearly that's based on that. You keep doing it, and yes, you didn't catch the ball, but do your right. hands this way, yes, and you do it again and again and again, and finally you're running down the field, and you put your hands up, and the ball lands in them, mm-hmm. and you get a touchdown. We're going to get to the, the teaching tale in a second, because it's a great one about, to, to me, the best the best story about love and intended consequences, and yes, stories are one of the three ways we learn the best, and it's the one of the top three that other animals do as far as we know, do not have the ability. They certainly have trial and error. You can see them going after something they want. An animal is near food, but there's some obstacle, and they're like pecking around it and getting above it and below it and coming in from the side. Trial and error. And, of course, when we see animals play, on a certain level, it's enjoyment, but it's primarily learning. Mm -hmm. Um, So... We'll get to the story uh, in a second, but the um, uh, the trial and error, we've said this before, but to me it is such an important shift in intelligence. <clears throat> we have three forms of intelligence interacting for the first time in human evolution. Nature's intelligence, The re- one of the reasons we have COVID-19 is because we don't pay attention to nature's intelligence. Uh, Nature requires balance, and we have, we human beings have built more, you know, built civilizations in wildlife areas that need to be left alone for the balance of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Uh, At any rate, um, the reason that Big Blue, the IBM computer, beat Gary Kasparov at the time in the 1990s, the greatest chess player of all time. Um, And Kasparov beat it one game, and then the computer beat him three, and then he just walked off. He realized what was going on. That while he, and I'm making up the numbers, but we could look them up, while he maybe could, in his head, in in his imagination, say, test out, 20 different moves, right, at a time, the computer could do, uh, you know, 100,000 at a time. (laughs) And the computer didn't always pick out the best option, but because it could go through trial and, you know, error so much faster, in its mind, the human couldn't compete. Then they said, okay, but chess, as complicated as it is, and with the Queen's Gambit so popular and deservedly so, chess is becoming a little more well-known just as an interesting game. As complicated as it is, there's still a limit, limited number of moves that are possible. There's 64 squares and so many pieces. And a computer, even in the 90s, they're much faster now, could go through almost all the permutations right. in seconds. <clears throat> but the fastest chess computer in the world got creamed by another computer invented by folks at Google because they came up with a really interesting experiment. (coughs) Big Blue and the computers after that could beat the best chess players um, were taught chess by having the programmers input the greatest human games of all time. 
Mm-hmm. So therefore, a computer could beat the best human because it had in its memory bank and could access, anytime a move was made, it could access a similar game that was played by the greatest of all time at one time or another. Some brilliant person at Google said, okay, what if we teach a computer the rules of chess, an algorithm. This is how you play chess. Let it play itself a million times. Mm-hmm. What was what were they creating? They were creating a field of trial and error. Mm-hmm. By the way, it took the computer a, c- a couple of hours to play itself a million times. <laughs> now think about that. I don't that. want to compete with a computer. <laughs> well, that's the point we're going to get to. If we're smart, we're going to learn how to collaborate with them, but the jury's out as to whether we will. We like to see it as a competition. In games, it is. It needs to be a collaboration. <laughs> Actually, that's not true either. In games, it's a collaboration also. But the so Google comes up and says, okay, let's teach a computer not here are the best human games, go beat a human, but here are the rules. Play yourself a million times. They then put that computer called Alpha Zero. Why? Because it had zero human knowledge. It only had the rules of the game and played itself a million times. That's interesting, but at some point in that system, half the computer had to lose. Right. <laughs> half well, the computer self. won and it, half yes, the computer it, it lost. But it's the same itself, computer. But it kept right. going and going and going. But it's one going. computer learning from its losses and its wins. Mm-hmm. And we all know, anyone who's played a sport, you learn as much, if not more, from losing than from winning. You would and think the computer would explode because it was losing, and and because it you're projecting yes, you're right, projecting what you're projecting with <laughs> right. the human brain human today. emotion. But you know, in in life in general, when one has an accident, <clears throat> um, the only way you learn from that is to think it through and think of all the variables that went on that day prior to that accident. And I've I've done that a lot for years, and I've stopped myself from doing certain things. What was it that made my hand-eye control off that day? Or why did I drop that cup? Or why did I miss that step on the stairs? And I'm amazed when people don't do that, when you say, well, what do you think led up to that? Well, I don't know. It was an accident. I mean, that word for so many people just covers the unknown as opposed to, but an accident happens for a reason. And you're identifying what most scientists, I think, would agree is the key to life in a way, and that is recognizing patterns, right? So uh, often of which are hidden and which our unconscious can pick up as well as our conscious mind. But at any rate, so trial and error, the most basic form of learning, which our educational system for the most part discourages, Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons that in many areas, not all, Computers can outperform the human brain. Not all. We still have, and this is just a project I'll be ta- announcing that I'm going to be starting in January. That's the part of our brain that the computers so far cannot even come close to equaling. That's where the collaboration needs to be. At any rate, we're talking about the law of unintended consequences. Now we're in the midst of a pretty horrific pandemic. And The reason the law of unintended consequences is important, as the New York Times article pointed out, okay, jazz musicians are suffering horrifically because of this. They're out of work. 
So what did they do? They started showing up on the streets in huge numbers and passing the hat. Did it solve the problem? No. But it, A, audiences love it. People started showing up knowing that jazz musicians were going to be playing on the street or in the park. It, and it, it was self-organized, which is a huge, interesting modern science, self-organization, right? There wasn't some central board, art board. I mean, there may be, but it wasn't because some central mm. art board organized street concerts around the city. That'd be great if they did. It was self-organized. It popped up. It was the law of unintended consequences, right? It's another way of saying nature pours a vacuum. It gets filled for good or for bad. And we have a huge vacuum. And so it would behoove us to look at and think about in our own lives, hmm, how can I take advantage of the law of unintended consequences? I think that the, uh, the pandemic has actually created many of those situations where people are being very inventive in finding ways to do things mm -hmm. that they used to do easily. Mm -hmm. And they're, now they're just having to figure it out, which is not a bad thing. I mean, it's advancing a lot of things that uh, would probably have happened over a longer period of time. If like this virtual reality. Happened. We were headed towards virtual reality with or without the pandemic, but this has accelerated it exponentially. Yeah, and, and, and they're learning. So we'll take our first break. This when is, are we going to get to hear that story? Well, this is a famous radio tease. <laughs> See, I know, I can tell. If, You're teasing me. <laughs> yes, if you, if, you go, if you go to broadcasting school, which of course I didn't, but if you, uh, <laughs> this is called the tease. It's for sure. It's working. Um, but the point is that the other side of the break, I will read one version of a, one of my favorite teaching tales since stories are one of the great ways we learn about the law of unintended consequences. We'll be right back. Uh, this is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host, with our two wonderful co-hosts. She's our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, which means we get a good poem later on. Victoria Sullivan, he plays great music for us here at Radio Woodstock on the weekends. Ron Van Warmer also keeps an eye on Hal. And uh, we're talking about the law of unintended consequences, that even under the most dire circumstances, you could call it the silver lining, whatever you want, but... It, the law of unintended consequences works both ways. Sometimes we get what we wanted. Whoops, but that created something else we weren't expecting that wasn't so great. And it works in reverse when something looks really like, oh, my God, I wish that didn't happen. And that created something that you are glad did happen. Here's the teaching tale. All right. <laughs> After this break. No, just kidding. <laughs> A long, long time ago. 
there was a kind old man who lived on the plains outside the Great Wall of China. The gentle old man had only two passions in his life, collecting rare breeds of horses and his beloved son. The old man and his son would ride their horses every day. They would travel great distances to trade horses, meet new people, enjoy the good fortune that life had bestowed upon them. But one morning, somebody leaves the stable door open, and one of the old man's favorite horses escaped. When the neighbors heard the news, they came to comfort the old man. They told him they were so empathetic and sorry that he had lost his favorite horse. But they found that the old man wasn't upset at all. He explained to his neighbors that, you know, maybe losing the horse wasn't necessarily bad luck. There was no, no way to predict that the horse would escape. It just happened, and now there was nothing that could be done about it. He said there's no reason to be upset. Neighbors thought he was a little strange. One week later, the horse came back and brought with him a mare. Uh-huh. This was not just any mare, but a rare and valuable white mare. When the neighbors heard that the old man's good luck, they quickly came to congratulate him. But again, the old man was not excited. As he'd explained before, it's not necessarily good luck that had brought him this new and beautiful white horse. It just happened, and there was no reason to get excited over it. <laughs> Still a bit puzzled, the neighbors left. A short time later, while his son was riding the white horse... She slipped and fell. She landed on the son's leg and broke his leg. He would always walk with a limp. Again, the neighbors came to soothe the old man and the son and give their sympathy for the bad luck. One of the neighbors suggested the old man sell that mare before any more bad luck could happen. And others said he should take his revenge and kill the mare. But the old man was calm. He explained to the neighbors they should shouldn't feel sorry for the son nor anger towards the mare. It was an accident. It couldn't be predicted. There was nothing they could do to change it. Now, the neighbors thought this guy's really a lunatic. Two years later, an enemy invaded the country, and all the old man's neighbors were drafted to defend the country against the attack. (laughs) Because the old man's son was lame, he didn't have to join the fighting. It was a horrific war, and most of the old man's neighbors were killed. But the son was spared because of his broke his limp. Very often when an event takes place that everyone thinks is good luck, the end results are disastrous. In the same way, an unlucky event can bring about happiness. So you should not lose your will to continue if an unlucky event happens, nor should you be too overjoyed or feel too self-satisfied because of good fortune. Yeah. I guess what they're really talking about is a great word called equanimity. Mm. Yeah, that that seems more a a story about attitude than about consequences, in Mm -hmm. a sense. Mm -hmm. Also, as soon as you started telling it, because I am trained in English literature, and you said he had a lot of these great horses, and he had his beloved son, I thought, okay, something's going to happen to the son. (laughs) I kind of knew that, because you'd set it up as like a teaching tale. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that he had, in fact, two forms of wealth, a son that he loved, and many horses. If there was going to be a problem in the story... It was going to be a horse and the son involved, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 (laughs) So, um, I I just love that story. It is a nice story, and I actually watched some kind of 
show on on the Genghis Khan period recently because I've become obsessed with it. And this thing of the wars in China is amazing. There were these sort of like it wasn't unusual for a war to break out and your little village outside the wall in this case has the invading army comes in and they they take everyone with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were their wars were very uh, large hordes of people coming over a hill and you didn't know if they would take all the women or you know mm-hmm. like the children or kill the cattle or plundering take your sons. and pillaging. Yeah, but it, now we say, oh, that was that's all ancient stuff. But then again. I was never a huge history buff, but the only history I like, I like the history of the Renaissance because maybe it's possible there'll be a second one after all this darkness. <laughs> and they made beautiful art. They did. But um, it was also, by the way, during the Italian Renaissance that the Medicis were murdering people. And uh, so Yeah, but they were never, buying really good art. <laughs> yeah. but, but my point is, it's never all one or the other. Yes. Oh, the Renaissance, a great period of art for True. I totally, it's true, but, and during, but people aren't the, nice now either. During during the spread <laughs> of the Renaissance through Europe, you also had the Spanish Inquisition at the same right. time. So um, recently, now here's a little tease again. Uh, next week, my guest is a friend of mine who retired recently as an art therapist. She worked mostly with underprivileged kids. And I didn't know this, but she sent me a book that she self-published on the career she's following after retiring from art therapy, which is past life regressions. Mm-hmm. She worked with a rather uh, renowned psychologist who works in this field. And so <clears throat> she said, well, if I'm going to come in and talk about it, why don't, why don't you experience it? And I've done a lot of self-hypnosis and a lot of visualizations, and it, it's very much part of that. It was a very interesting experience, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about next week. But based on that, I read a little history uh, because I ended up in um, Amsterdam in the 17th century. Good time to land there. Yes. <clears throat> but uh, the Renaissance was in full swing. But we think of all those crazy ancient wars that went on for, you know, decades. The 30 years war turned, it was more than 30 years. <laughs> yeah, well. It went on for 100 years. England, Spain, and France, and Germany Two or more of them were fighting against each other, wars, constantly. Right. Well, they would take off for a season or something. It wasn't like everyday war. It wasn't like now, but it was, yes, warfare. You'd have seasons of it. It was like the baseball league or something. (laughs) Really? Because they mostly fought the wars in good weather. They weren't that crazy. So, you know, the the war would start in March or April and around September or October, they'd have to go home for the harvest. The United States has been at war most of its existence. Off and on. Every empire has. Almost, almost constantly. Well, we've had little ones and big ones. Yes, we've had a lot. Yeah. We're we're, we're into weapons and we're into warrior culture. We are mammals. Not for long because (laughs) pretty soon we're going to have computer parts and this and that. But the mammalian brain... And we have more than that. We have a cerebral cortex, but that's a whole other story. Uh, the mammalian brains, we've talked about this, main instinct, important one. Without it, it wouldn't survive. And if mammals didn't survive, we wouldn't be here, uh, is territory, defending territory. Yeah. And so we humans, even with our cerebral cortex and the amazing advantages our brains have in terms of wiring compared to other mammals, haven't figured out how to avoid reverting back to that amygdala fear 
right? The emotional fear and protect the territory, protect the territory. Trump got elected in 2016. The first thing he talked about when he came down the escalator. Borders, borders. We're building a wall. Yep. He wasn't stupid. He understood the mammalian brain. Um, So... Well, he possessed a mammalian brain, which might be on some level sort of stupid. But don't we all? (laughs) Some of us rise above it. Really? Yeah. Some evidence, (laughs) not a lot. What, like Democrats are are peaceful? No, I'm not saying that. You just (laughs) made that up. No, I was just thinking about wars like uh, territorial wars uh, sort of makes sense, you know, like, and I'm sure the Native Americans had a lot of them, you know, like the Cherokees and someone. But, you know, like there's wars like the Crusades where like a crazy idea drives you. Mm. We have to go to Jerusalem and save it. You know, we don't actually want to live in Jerusalem. We want to live in France or England or wherever. But... We have to save it for ideological reasons. That's the part of us that goes beyond the mammalian into the crazy. So now, now you just touched on something interesting. Law of unintended consequences. A, as far as we know, a lion, a tiger, uh, or a boa constrictor has never said, all right, I'm good at killing animals here for food. Why don't we expand our right. empire? <laughs> Let's go to the, another continent and and take over yeah. that, and we'll have more to eat. They why they don't do that? No, because and, but the reason they don't do that is not because they wouldn't. <laughs> it's because their brains are not capable of imagining that. Right way. here we have the human brain with all of its advantages, the front the the the, the, the cerebral the frontal cortex the neocortex the newest part of the human brain is is the square footage square inch wise the biggest part of our brain with the most wiring but unless we train and our educational system doesn't do it unless we train ourselves to access that and beware of when we revert back to the amygdala and the emotional and the fearful part sometimes it's warranted we're going to be fighting wars until we destroy ourselves uh, but the, the reason the human being could create a crusade and say, I've got this idea. Let's go over to that country and force them to believe what we believe. And this one far away. <laughs> it took years to even get there. To even right. think of that requires <laughs> advanced wiring of the human brain. It just then goes haywire because it's connected to the emotional part that's fearful and territorial. So, so let's expand our territory. Well, we have fear and territory, but I think we also have some crazy desire to conquer and control because like my ancestors the vikings i mean like they really got big ideas you know you they got just... a bit they were sweethearts they just got a, they just <laughs> they just got bad pr <laughs> come on i i think that desire to conquer is a kind of beyond mammalian it's some kind of weird human drive it is it is a weird human drive but it comes from the territorial imperative which is mammalian. At any rate, we uh, so <laughs> part of what the human beings. This connects right to what you were saying about the Crusades, conspiracy theories. Because now, law of unintended consequences, the World Wide Web, which I keep extolling as the only I think hope for another Renaissance, is also the reason we have QAnon and that all these crazed conspiracy theories can gain such traction at a speed and breadth never before possible. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get a lot of people believing in this, in these crazed conspiracies. But to be honest, all sides of the political spectrum have fallen under the sway of conspiracy theories. There's something extremely attractive 
about conspiracy theories. So I sent an article to, to both of you about uh, um, conspiracy theories. What did you think of it, Victoria? I found it interesting and provocative because he trying to, tries to get to – well, he's interested particularly in the global cabal theory that there's a group of powerful people running the world. And what I liked about that was that when he looks at the other side of it, like why do people want to even think that? It's such a wacky, <laughs> disturbing thought. And he said, because it makes life simpler in a way. You don't have to understand anything. All you have to understand is that there's this dark world of power people. And in the Nazi era, it was perceived that it was the Jews taking over the world and the banks mm -hmm. and the economy and, and communism and everything else. And, and so now we have it. We don't know who they are, but they're international. And, and maybe they're little cliques of power families like the Bushes and the Clintons, et cetera. Uh, but we can't put our finger on, on it. But it's there. And when people believe in that, it actually kind of calms them down because I don't have to think about anything that much because I know that really there's a dark conspiracy. I mean, that one of the Clinton administration being connected with child pornography and pizza parlors, mm -hmm. that one is still floating around <laughs> right. 20 years later. Mm -hmm. My only, uh, I'm only upset about that is because uh, they're, they're giving pizza a bad name. <laughs> and pizza is one of the greatest reasons to be alive is to enjoy pizza. But, uh, you know, conspiracies, I mean, they are anti-intellectual in that if you said, well, let's pull this apart and let's see the proofs and things, these people don't want to think like mm -hmm. that. And in a way, it's really like religion coming down from above. You don't have to understand the Bible because you can't read anyway and we put it in Latin. But we're going to tell you what it means. We're going to intercede. We're going to deal with God for you. So it's just you talk to us, the priests. Or, or you could pray to a saint if you wanted, but you always need an intercession because God is too complicated. But a conspiracy theory <laughs> needs evidence. So people search for evidence to confirm the conspiracy. But then now we get to an interesting uh, phenomenon, which science has proven, which is, and this is, it's, it's weird, but they've proven it. Let's assume, <laughs> let's, 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 let's assume that the three of us were each uh, paid to research the same thing. Um, and we had different opinions about it going in. And we're going to really try to do the best job we can. We're not just trying to fulfill our own fantasies. We're going to look at the same facts and get different results. Mm -hmm. Right. And here's how they proved it. They proved that they did an experiment where they could show that forgetting about conspiracy or that the, that the, peop, the scientists involved were just greedy and interested in making money. The fact is that who pays for the study, mm -hmm. even if they say, come up with, we just want you to go get the results. We, we don't want you to fulfill what we think. We really want to learn. It doesn't matter. The objective reality of any scientific experiment depends upon the mindset of the person going into the experiment. This is what quantum theory has proven over and over again. So, Welcome to the world of unintended consequences. There's no such thing as objective truth exactly. at the big level. On the small level, there is. Sure. You know, we could all agree 
that that speaker, the front of that speaker is red. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't agree on the exact shade of red, but there is, we, science is over, there's no such thing as pure objective reality. And so because of that, that gives a lot of room for conspiracy theories. And I have to admit, I'm for the, at my advanced age, for the first time, I'm willing to not agree, but at least conceive that Lee Harvey Oswald pretty much acted alone in killing John F. Kennedy. There's a part of my brain that can't wrap myself around it. It can't be just one guy. There's, there were too many people who disliked him. There were too many things going on that would make sense. Uh, the mob hated Kennedys for good reason. Uh, they got him elected. That's a fact. Without the mob, John F. Kennedy's not president. Um, a lot of dead people voted in Chicago. <laughs> and that was a very close election. And then Robert Kennedy went after the mob as soon as he became attorney general. Mm. You know, um, So there, were, there was good reason, rational reasons that the mob wanted Kennedy dead. There were also very solid reasons why the CIA wanted him out of office. Because he had doubts about the Vietnam building up the build the, the mm-hmm. forces in Vietnam, and the CIA was gung ho on doing it. But here we are, fifty, uh, sixty, seventy years later. How many is it? It's forty, sixty, fifty-eight years later. Um, if there was a conspiracy, I can't believe we wouldn't know about it. Mm-hmm. How do you keep it? How do you keep okay, something I, like that secret? You know, when you say this, because I'm the reverse of Doug. I always believe the one thing because I sort of believed the Warren con, uh, Commission. Warren Commission, and headed by John Foster Dulles. But now who's head of that the CIA. I have way less faith in the government than I had when I was young, right? Um, I think if they didn't want it coming out, you can cover up things for a while because they do this long report and they spend a couple of years and I'm believing in them at the time and they come back and they say this is it and they have the trajectory of the bullets and this is where the guy stood and I thought okay solved and then people would say these other things and I'd say well yeah that's an interesting theory but I believe this now as I realize and it took me years to understand things like corporate greed and and how we're manipulated by the corporate culture uh, and then the th- the crazy things that banks have done and when they were lending all that money that they knew couldn't be paid and then we had uh, 2008 I mean like in my lifetime I have seen things dependent on corruption greed lying uh, misleading refusing to see the evidence etc so now I believe more that that Kennedy's death very well may not have been just a single <laughs> nut job. But it took me years to come around to that. Mm. And but you see, here's an inter- here's where the interesting mix is. First of all, you could be right, but I have to believe. I'm not talking about you can't keep two people can't keep a secret. But in this day and age, it's almost impossible to keep a secret. It was easier to cover up things in 1962 when Kennedy was than it is now. But After the fact, we get it. But look at 2008. That secret of what they were doing but it and the secret. ludicrousness it of it. It wasn't secret. It wasn't totally secret, but it wasn't out there as a truth, as an obvious, we're heading for the iceberg. Here comes the iceberg. We've got the Titanic. We're going to drive right into Excuse it. Excuse me. 
and crash. Number one. <laughs> right. But there wasn't a conspiracy. What it was was greed. So you just brought but, up But I think banks are conspirators. You're calling it just greed. I think they conspire in they their do. greed. They try. Look, if, you, if we have to be careful. Do people try to hide what they're doing? Sure. That's not a conspiracy. Conspiracy has a more specific meaning. A conspiracy, we know, let's be honest, look in the mirror. We all do that. We all try to hide things we don't want to get out. Every one of us. That's not a conspiracy. A conspiracy is when, I believe, uh, I don't know if it's two or more or three or more, people literally plan something in secret. Right, but also they plan to mislead, and we see that in That's advertising. That's not a conspiracy. I think that is. A, why no, is it's that not. not? That, it's manipulation. Conspiracy is you don't even want it. You want you don't want what you're doing known. You don't, I don't want what you're doing known. I don't think just the unknown part of it is the conspiracy, because I think it's also what are you trying to achieve and what means, and you're trying to keep some parts of your means secret. That's, there's the class. We want collaboration. We want people getting together and making plans and working them out. A conspiracy is you don't want people to know about well, it. Well, isn't a monopoly a conspiracy? If it's not if it's out in the open. Well, but they hmm. take a while to come out in the open. We're looking at all these things after the fact and saying, well, they came out in the open. But uh, well, I let's, think okay, but let's, conspiracy <laughs> literally means to breathe together. But um <laughs> Hmm. Ah, co-spire. Right. But anyway, let's get back, instead of getting to the weeds on that, let's get back into <laughs> are there conspiracies? They're clearly we know that banks get together and they don't want it known because if it was known, it, it, people would get so outraged they'd have to stop. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of the 2008 mortgage debacle, <clears throat> number one, we know that Bill Clinton led the fight to get rid of the uh, Glass-Spiegel Act, uh, which was a very important legislation that said, banks, since banks have our money, they're responsible for maintaining our money, we're not going to let banks invest in crazy schemes, get-rich schemes. They're restricted to do, that. they have to invest very, very conservatively. Bill Clinton, a Democrat, led the fight to get that revoked. It's not hard to, to understand that if now banks can do all kinds of risky investments, they're going to keep upping the ante until the whole thing implodes. And I've, I don't know if I told this story before, but let's get to Patrick. We'll talk about it after the next break <laughs> because <clears throat> uh, if anybody knows about conspiracies, it's Patrick Carlin because he <laughs> would be tuned into it before all of us. Patrick, are you there? I've ignored conspiracies all my life. I think they're moronic. Uh, JFK is dead. Doesn't matter who killed him. Could have been FBI guys uh, getting him in the bar and fostering his thing. He'd been to Russia and this and that. He was uh, a little bit loose upstairs. They could have done it. And uh, then again, it could have been... Uh, the people you're talking of, I mean, Bobby Kennedy was a very ungrateful dude uh, on that election trip. And we all know how the outfit works and all. And I got no problem with them because their rules are beautiful, beautiful, and they work. Uh, anyway, they did until they busted through Omerta. But uh, keeping your mouth shut and stuff like that and paying guys when they're away doing time and all, I got, I got no problems. I don't have a gambling Jones and stuff. 
I can tell you funny stories about guys that were in debt to the outfit, and the two guys were sent to whack them. And uh, the dude was a funny guy, and they started enjoying him. And the hitman called the main dude and says, uh, hey, we'd really like this guy. And they set him up in an antique store. <laughs> they set the dude up so he could make the 25G and pay them. He was the kind of guy who went up in his apartment, and he would open the closet, you know, and show you'd see like 200 suits, and he'd say, what are you, a 38 regular? <laughs> you know, he was, uh, uh, that's where he was, but they took a lot, I mean, the reality is the trip. I don't have time for conspiracies. And uh, what, I, what I see are these unintended results trip. That's what got me going. I loved it this morning. California or somewhere came up with a trip to clean the air, and then by the time it got down to the water level, uh, it ruined the water. That's kind of an unintended thing. And when you did the Chinese dude story, I'm thinking, man, you're talking about me. I gotta, that's my whole life, man. Whatever it is. Oh, wow. I got a horse dropping in my bag. I'm a happy dude. I don't care if there's a pony or not. I'm already ahead. I, you know, man, this is what you got. And you go with what you got. And when you understand stuff like uh, the play, you got the cards here and that's what you play, and don't moan about it, man, because this dude next to you is really suffering. And you are whining about only having a hamburger, and he hasn't seen a crust of bread for two weeks. Where are you at, Jack? So I've always been a philosopher. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's just, well, say, hey, man, she was great while she was in the neighborhood, but now she's in Europe. Uh, bon voyage. <laughs> oh, man. And you had so much in here. That I've got so much stuff here uh, about when you came in with that, uh, the thing about the... Uh, uh, see if it's the, uh, the, what the hell was it called? The, uh, what they're throwing. They were doing something too long. I prefer, oh, trial and error. <laughs> I don't want to be the first guy to see is the bungee cord a little bit too long. <laughs> no. I want to see that other dude. We ran into these things walking across, uh, boards, you know, from one roof to the other and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I was. I can't remember ever being first on that kind of a scene, man. Uh, I prefer to lay back and say, "Well, we don't want to go down that trail. That guy, he didn't last long." Uh, and that's learning. That's when you're walking by the fence and there's a hole in the fence, you know, and it says, uh, "Naked women working out. Uh, do not look." And the guy goes up and he sticks his head right through the the, the pipe and he. Uh, you don't have to try it to see if it works on you, too. <laughs> trial and error by observation. That's the best kind of trial by error, observation. But, you know, I'll, and, tell, you, I'll tell you, I know one place that you did trial and error, and that's swimming in the Hudson River. Oh, well, I knew how to swim, and I knew how to do the Hudson Crawl, because you know you're going to be bouncing into things that you wouldn't want in your cocktails. <laughs> So you do this stroke that we used to call the Hudson Crawl, and that brushes everything aside. Once you get out past that, the Hudson was pretty decent. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with the Hudson. And the library trip burning down. Oh, that's so bad, man. That's a big bummer. But uh, like you say, life goes on. And I, you had the guy of the, the trail, trial, no, the other guy, what others do. I look at it. Oh, the oh, I got them all conspiracies. Wow, I'm up top. You know, oh, 
you did the thing again today of, of getting into stuff. I just watched a thing about Madison Avenue when you're talking about, you know, running the hustle and all. And here's a beauty. I'm proud of the dude who came up with it. Invisible dirt. <laughs> that, that is a good one. How's that? I looked at Marlene last night. I said, did he just say invisible dirt? <laughs> Someone was holding up a T-shirt, and it looked clean, but with the phosphorescent trip on it, they were showing up stage. was a... Because you hadn't, I think it was tied, and I'm not knocking them. I'm not knocking them when I say this because they're doing it. They're doing it for the guys who go to the carnival, just like Trump and them. That whole scene is for the people who go to the carnival at the state fair, and then they go to the fortune teller lady, and they listen to her because she says, I see a fortune in your future uh, on many bottles many bottles and then the guy goes from there down to the knock the milk bottles down thing and gets hustled out of the farm savings and all <laughs> when they put him on the send and uh he's their prey and he's legal for them because he's not paying attention and that's the law of consequences and when you break the law of consequences you will pay as the song i'm going to play at home here today I fought the law, and the law won. Oh, yeah. Bobby Fuller, <laughs> oh, my four. Pals, the Clash, man. Oh, the Clash oh, did it. Come and the, on. Get the, and I'll tell you what we're going to do. everybody out there something. I don't care, man. All right, Patrick, we got to take a, a break, but you just helped us out. When we come back, we're going to play two versions. We're, the Clash did a great I fought the law, and the law won, but the original, Bobby Fuller, four, I think their name was, yes. one of the great rock and roll songs of all time. And by the way, Bobby Fuller uh, got killed by the mob just to bring things full circle but they didn't like his music (laughs) uh anyway patrick carlin always a pleasure say hello to the big electron and the family and we'll catch you next week trial and error is the best way (laughs) all right my friend (laughs) we'll be right back